think I'm doing those eyes. <laughs> I think I'm in love. It was terrifying. The pain, the, the fear of being eaten. I was drowning at the same time. I just accepted that I was going to die. Was there a bit of fandom for you when it came on? Oh, you huge. And I did not try to hide. <laughs> did not try to hide at all. Out of the Box with Serge Negus on FBI. Massive thanks to Eddie Hughes for the big morning of music and culture news over there. If you missed anything she played, you can head to fbiradio.com to catch up on the show or any other program here on the station. Now, my guest today is a Wiradjuri woman and an academic who focuses on, I guess, developing Aboriginal studies programs and advancing social justice for Indigenous Australians. Her name is Jennifer Newman, and it's a pleasure to have her here. Jennifer, thank you for coming on Out of the Box. Thank you, Serge. Now, look, before we get stuck into some of the incredible work that you do, um, I'd love to just get a little bit of a picture as to, to your growing up, where you grew up, mm-hmm. um, what your country was like. Hmm. Okay, Serge, I grew up in central New South Wales, and so this is a, a good opportunity for me to, to do an acknowledgement of country, in fact, which is a great place to start. I'm Wiradjuri. I grew up in central New South Wales in a little town called Narromine. Present population, about 3,800 people. Uh, a small town who I think, if you went there today, you'd rec- I would recognise a lot of the people because the population is quite consistent. My Wiradjuri country is the country of my father's people. Um, I've grown up on the banks of Womble, the Macquarie River, and I travel up and down that river. I learnt to swim in that river. Um, I've grown up on flat country amongst a farming community and a community of people who've come together, Aboriginal people, non-Aboriginal people, who've come together to grow our town. So that's acknowledging my home country and I should also say as a Wiradjuri woman I'm here on Gadigal country this morning. I've travelled here from Wongal country so I live out along the Cooks River, the Pelican River out on the fringe of the inner west. So from Wongal country, I travel in here to Gadigal country today. And in thinking about that acknowledgement of country, I think about other people who've made that journey before me. And one of those people is Benelong. Wollarwari Benelong was a Wongal man. So I live on Benelong's country and I look after Benelong's river today, as I would look after my own when I am home. And now I travel up here to Gadigal country where I've travelled a path that Benelong has taken, but also that many other great ancestors and great warriors like Pemelwoy have taken. So now I'm up here, I'm close to the coast. I'm close to that big river that we call Sydney Harbour now. So I'm still travelling along rivers and still looking after rivers all the way along. That is such a beautiful way to acknowledge it. And I I have to say that I I feel like a lot of people listening today probably haven't had an acknowledgement of country spelt out in such an incredible way like that so i thank you so much for that and look i mean growing back to 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 wiradjuri i mean paint us a picture of your family life and Mm -hmm. and and what it was like growing up there as a kid Mm -hmm. because it's pretty remote i guess like for you Um, in some way it's not that remote dubbo's 25 miles to the east i mean but it's still (laughs) bush it's It's still like you know i grew up in bellingen it's still like it like it's Mm -hmm. it's very different to what urban Sydney life is like or a lot of our listeners mm-hmm. get to experience. So what, what yep. was it like? What was it like? Um, look, I, I have to say I had a, I had a lovely growing up life um, and part of the reason for that is, is the nature of my little town. So, so Narromine is not so far from Dubbo. Well, maybe I should say Dubbo is not far from Narromine <laughs> uh, to get the perspective right. Um, 
But my my con- my concept and my experience of the town is that is as I said earlier, it's a group. It's, it's a town that's grown up of people who've come together to support a sheep and wheat and citrus farming community. So my nan and my pop moved to Narromine. My father's parents moved to Narromine. Um, I guess late twenties, early thirties. They had both lived and travelled around the country, my pop coming up from the Riverina, from Hillston up to Condoblin and then over to Peak Hill, living at various times on government reserves as he went along. My father's mother, my nan, was born on the banks of Little River, which is a creek tributary of the Taubragar River, Um, and then she moved with her mother to Wellington to um, another Aboriginal camp called Bush Rangers Creek, And then she moved to Peak Hill where my nan and my pop met and were married on Balgandra Mine Reserve. Then they moved to Narromine. At first they lived in in the Aboriginal camp that was out on Max Reserve on the outside of town where my oldest auntie was born. And then they eventually moved to Rosebank and then into the town. So they were were people who were well known and who worked very hard to, to... embed themselves and to make themselves a part of the community. And what sort of things did they like do for, yeah. for work? Like, were they, like yeah. what sort of yeah. jobs did they do? Because, you know, you're <laughs> yeah. obviously this incredible academic. I mean, were they teachers? What did they do? Not at all. My uh, my pop was a shearer. <laughs> he nice, was, nice. Um, he, Good, honest work. Oh, good, honest work. It's, well, it's tough good, work. Tough work. It's good until your back gives out. Yeah, of course. Um, so, so he travelled around shearing and there's... Um, there's there's a tale that's told about him and it's recorded in the local history about Pop shearing um, and shearing with the Wallace brothers um, who were... The Wallace family is still a, a, a prominent family in Narromine as well and the Wallaces are all um, fair hairs and, and blue eyes and um, very... A, a, a very Scots, I suppose, mm-hmm. <laughs> family. Pop, on the other hand, was sort of you know, smaller and darker and, and Aboriginal and Wiradjuri. Um at the end of a shed, I think they'd been out to Tottenham, at the end of a shed they'd finished cheering out at Tottenham and they went to stay in the pub and they all had to sign into the visitor's book on the Sunday. And so all of the Wallace brothers wrote their names, you know, Reg Wallace and Arthur Wallace and Wallace and Wallace and my pop came <laughs> on, he wrote Billy Wallace on the bottom. And so the story goes, the publican raised an eyebrow at him and he said, it's all right, I'm the black sheep of the family. <laughs> Uh, which is, which is the sort of uh, yeah humour and, and belonging, but but because yeah, at this yeah. at this time you know my pops walking around with his exemption certificate with his dog tag in his pocket, mm. a, a permission from the state government for him to be at large and to be travelling around and collecting his wages yeah, for yeah. shearing. Um, what year was this? Just quickly, just so we can. Oh gosh, we're we're, we're we're going back to the 1930s here yeah. in the 1940s. Um, so so pop shearing. He's well known. He's travelling with other people. He and Nan are building a house in town. Um, my Nan does is doing all sorts of work. And what what I really remember my Nan doing for work, which is interesting when I think of my educational um, experience and, and direction, is that my Nan was a cleaner at the school, um, which is perhaps her most um, intimate and sustained contact with the formal education system in New South Wales. So it's so it's quite special to me and quite important to me to have gone to school, enjoyed school, embraced learning and then to move on to education to be working in universities um, as I am now. So that's that's my that's the path, grandparents yeah. pushing yeah, yeah. me through to education. 
Um, my dad was um, was a linesman for the Macquarie County Council, which is now Country Energy, when Glenn mm-hmm. Campbell's song Wichita Lineman came out. Yeah, I yep. thought that might have been about my dad. <laughs> um, I remember we had that record at home. That's classic. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. And what about your mum? And my mum, my mum's a Dubbo girl, um, a Macintosh, descended from bagpipe players and tartan wearers. <laughs> <laughs> so, which, which is actually, um, and again, it's a, it's a really important part of me coming to know my identity because my my mum's Macintosh people, of course, have also experienced a great deal of uh, cultural oppression and um, having been denied the right to wear the tartan and, and the Macintosh clan have fought with all of the other clans to try and push the push the English back over the border, back to the south. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so Serious part of Scottish history, really, isn't it's, it? It's an enormous part wow, of Scottish what history. What an amazing yeah. little family kind of connection you have there. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose the, 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 the other story about family connection that I would tell you that's pretty neat as well is that one of my mum's other ancestors is James Squire. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That so is it was, very neat. Yeah. Because yeah. he was one of Benelong's good mates, right? He was one of Benelong's good mates. Yeah. And, in and fact, in yeah. fact yeah. I mean, they lived together, very close together. They lived they? close together. They spent a lot of time yeah. together. When Benelong returned from his trip to England um, in poor health, um, and in, in, in a, a pretty um, tenuous social position as well, mm. um, it was Squire who yeah. extended the hand For those of you who don't know yeah. who Squire is, he's like one of the most famous convict brewers, basically. That's, that's as, as the story goes, right? As, as the story yeah. goes, that's right. Which um, the beer is now named after, really. Like, so, yeah. Yeah, continuing his yeah. tradition. Um, yeah, so you can set yourself a project to, to buy one each of the different versions of James Squire beer and so put his story together. Yeah. But anyway, Squire and James Squire and Benelong had this close friendship. And when Benelong passed away... Eventually, he was going to be buried in an unmarked grave. He was going to be um, because he was in such an abject state when he died. And James Squire said, "This man has been a great friend to the colony, and has been of great value to us. He he deserves a dignified burial." And so Squire took Ben along up to his orchard um, in uh, I suppose like where Putney is now, and buried him in his orchard and mounted a stone to recognise the great contribution that Benelong had made to the establishment of the colony and, I guess, to setting the roots of what we now know as Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to have, to have those two people back in, in 1788, to have Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people in my family coming together in such, in such intimate and uh, mutually respectful and recognising ways is, is really a very valuable element of being totally is well look yeah. jennifer it's amazing having you here we're going to continue this story some more but mm-hmm. we do have to get onto some music first though mm-hmm. so what's what's track number one that you're going to play mm-hmm. for us today on the show track number one is marlene cummins pemelwoy um i choose this track because i for one it's a track that really um really shows off marlene's rich voice and her passion for both her music and storytelling i also chose this track because Pemelwa is one of our, our great resistance warriors and great uh, historical heroes. Uh, ben, uh, Pemelwa crossed the river, crossed the, the Cooks River um, out near Tempe where Fatima Island stands today and in, in his journeys north to south as he travelled up and down country trying to, trying to control and contain the expansion and destruction that he was seeing moving across country. So I think you know, to, to finish an acknowledgement of countries, talk, uh, playing a song about Pemelwa is really important. Mm-hmm. 
Bejigal man From your clan Fought against invaders To save his people's land Twelve long years You bravely fought Military might Didn't stop your plight Against invasion Of a once proud nation Mm, Seven bullets inside your body, leg irons on your feet, put you in that stronghold. Oh, clever payback man, just can't be beat, just can't be beat. Bidjigal man. From your clan, oh Pamoy, oh Pamoy, mm, clever man. From your clan, you saw their evil, let them cut you down. Clever man gotta move to higher ground. Busy go man from your clan. Oh, clever, clever man, that you're a man. Busy go man, you're a clan. Oh, clever man. Listening to Out of the Box NPR Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest here today is Jennifer Newman. She's an Radjuri woman who is constantly fighting for the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people around the country. Now, you then came from the country to Sydney, and what was the purpose of your move originally? Oh, look, <laughs> probably at the heart of it was um, 
was coming up with a special person, someone who I'd met um, at, when I was at college at Wagga. Nice. Um, so we, we came up to Sydney together. Um, so, yeah, so it was coming up to Sydney with a person, but also um, at that stage I was in my early 20s. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, where I was going. I had started a graphic arts degree at college, which is where some of my skills lay, mm -hmm. but I never quite got my teeth into it properly. So I came up to Sydney and that's where I, I began studying at um, what's now the university, or it's now Western Sydney University. It was then MacArthur Institute of Higher Education, which is where I commenced my Aboriginal Studies major in my Bachelor of Arts degree. So that was, I, I, I think, a real sort of um, opening up for me of the possibility of my Aboriginality being the root of, of something scholarly and academic and also that would make an important contribution to education. So, so I came to Sydney and first of all lived out in Campbelltown. Um, interestingly, coming to Sydney, what I've noticed in, in recent years is that I've, I've came to Sydney in 1985, no, 1984, I think. Lived in Campbelltown, moved to Ingleburn, then I moved to Chippendale and lived in Ivy Street for many years. <laughs> From Ivy Street, I moved over to Clovelly. Wow, that's a big move. That's a lot Top of... Top of the hill at Clovelly. <laughs> and then, then, in an incredible set of circumstances, ended up living in a flat right down on Clovelly Beach which was astonishing for someone from yes, there's <laughs> from so Central much New contrast Sydney. in those moves. It's wild, um, yeah. So down, uh, down to Clovelly Beach I went. Um, and well, how did that, like, I mean, yeah. seeing the difference in those places and I guess going through this process of studying and working and, and experiencing new things mm. but then experiencing such, uh, I guess, disparity in, in wealth and background, did that have an impact on you in any way? Um, I think I think something that I, I carry with me from the bush to the city mm. is a sense of living in a place surrounded by people. So wherever I've lived, um, and, and Clovelly is certainly a place that, that this is part of my experience, wherever I've lived, I've always just, you just look for the people, you look for your neighbours, you say mm. hello to people, you talk to the people who live downstairs and the people who live on the corner and you say hi to the bus driver. Um, and while I think initially it wasn't a conscious act on my part, it's it was certainly a family habit and a community habit. To yeah, just seeking get out to community. Know, yeah, of get course. To know people. So, so you, you adapted to it. High. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's so you know the, the the other people who lived in the block of flats got to know, got to say hi. Um, you know the regular bus drivers that you'd see, you'd start to you know you get a little, that little rapport that you get with your regular bus driver. Um, so in the, in the years that I lived at Clovelly, I certainly saw, and this was, I suppose, 2002 to 2006, I saw an, an increase in development, um, an increase in, in sort of the, the, the pressure of, of living on the coast, the pressure to live on the coast. And there was a shift in the, in the feeling of community around there. Older houses were being knocked down more, um, new bigger houses were being built and and uh the the sense of community around clovelly began to change a bit around the time i moved um so in 2006 i moved from clovelly out to hurlston park where i where i live now mm -hmm. 
Um, so one one element of that story is that I've I've just figured out it took me twenty five years to hit the coast. Mm. A journey from the wow twenty five years twenty five years to hit wow. the coast, and now I think I'm making my twenty five year journey home. No way. That's, so you do want to yeah. go? You do want to get back out towards yep. Yep. towards the bush? I'll go home. I'll yeah. go home. That's where I've got to go back into the ground. Of course. Yeah. Fair yeah. That's yes, totally it's understandable. Nice. And I guess yeah. like were there you know any key struggles that you had coming from you know, the country to the city? Were there things that really just kind of were like, wow, and smacked you in the face in terms of how different they were or how, um, yeah, the perspective was different? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I, I don't know that I have felt a particular struggle with coming from the bush to the city. And, and I think that's a bit to do with perspective. Mm. I think from the city, the bush looks much further away than the city looks from the bush when you're looking back from west. Yeah, totally. Um, So we travelled to Sydney regularly. Um, I had family living in Sydney, so sometimes we would come up for family holidays or for weddings to visit people. Um, We we always came for school excursions to to the city. So 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 finally reaching arriving in the city in in 1984 1985 wasn't a big wasn't coming to to an unknown place. Mm. It was a familiar place. It was a place that I had already been um even if it was just for short times. And and the being able to move from the from the city to the bush is also still really easy for me. It's 6 hours on the road in the car. But that doesn't strike me as a, as a huge journey, um, which I think is perhaps different for a lot of city people who think about travelling to the bush, who's like, oh, six-hour drive, that's such a long <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, that, so I do have that perspective. Um, and also there's so much, of the, so much of Sydney available in, you know, in the media. Um, you see it on television, you see it in the news, you see it in the movies. Um, so... So going to Sydney is going to a known place, um, and and I, th- I think that I, I became really acutely aware of that uh, the first time I travelled to the US when I went to New York City mm. and I landed in Manhattan, and and again I, I didn't feel overwhelmed or lost or anything in in the centre of Manhattan, for that same reason that the that this big place, this city, this this mad rush, this huge number of people was was really familiar to me. Totally. So. That's a really interesting thing because I think a lot of people would expect almost the opposite that you'd feel so rattled by coming out. But there you go; mm-hmm. it was it was an easy transition. It's um yeah. it's an incredible story. But look, we're going to get more into it further down the track. But first, we have to take some more music. We're going to come back and we we are going to talk about some of the incredible work you've done um over the years at university in terms of the the studies programs that you've initiated. Mm-hmm. Um, but first, the next song you've got for us, Jimmy Little, Into Temptation. Mm-hmm. Why have you chosen this one? Mm-hmm. When I thought about coming to talk to you today, Serge, I was thinking about music and what's been important in my life. And in our house, one of the record covers that I can really clearly remember is the cover of Jimmy Little's um, album, The Country Sounds of Jimmy Little. And there's there's Uncle Jimmy sitting up on the on the seat on a, of a, a stagecoach with a big canvas top with his guitar on his <laughs> neck. <laughs> um, and there's there's lots of country music. In, in my family, um, I, I know lots of country music, but that that album, Jimmy Little's album, was really important because there was this Aboriginal man on the cover of, of, of that record. Um, 
and it's quite a quite a sentimental image in my mind. An enduring image, really. Very much so. But also, Jimmy Little is an enduring figure in Australian music. Totally. Um, and so when his his album Messenger came out, um, it quickly went into high rotation and in my own in my house and in my in my own ears um his beautiful covers of of all of those fantastic songs from australian music um really resonated with me and jimmy's voice is like honey it's sweet it's mellow it's really beautiful i've chosen into temptation because it is a song that suits that beautiful mellow honey voice really well uh it's a song that somebody sent me some lyrics, a little snippet of lyrics from at a time when I was travelling in my car listening to that song and this person was also listening to that song and there's, um, uh, as I turned to go, to go, you looked at me for half a second and it captured a little moment that we had had between ourselves and it was, uh, it's a song that makes my heart go quite fluttery when I think about how gorgeous and golden those moments are when when a song brings two people together and you can be listening to the same song even though you're 300 miles apart. You opened up your door I couldn't believe my love You in your new blue dress Taking away my breath The cradle is soft and warm Couldn't do me no harm You're showing me how to give Into temptation Knowing full well the earth will rebel Into temptation In a muddle of nervous words Could never amount to betrayal The sentence is all my own Is to watch it fail as I turn to go. You look at me for half a second, an open invitation for me to go into temptation.
Listening to Out of the Box FBR Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest here today is Wiradjuri woman Jennifer Newman, constantly fighting for Indigenous rights around the country. Now, look, let's get stuck into your work because it's quite fascinating work. You, you've done a lot of research, um, you know, looking into, I guess, learning within universities and TAFE for Indigenous Australians. Can you can you run us through that? <laughs> where where do we start? So. Um in, in my family, my, my dad was a founding member of the New South Wales AECG, the Aboriginal Education Consultative Group, and, and in my story, education and going to school has always been important, has been highly valued by my family. When I was coming to the end of my undergraduate degree, I was having those one of those sorts of, oh, my goodness, now what am I going to do moments because I'd studied Aboriginal studies and literature and art history and... And I was feeling a little bit adrift in the world, whereas other people and people I'd gone to school with, they were they were being nurses and they were building houses and they were <laughs> running businesses and I could think things. <laughs> I could read things and I could think things. Um, so it was with much relief that I discovered that this was actually, you know, sort of a career path and a job that you could do as well. So I've been at university since 1982. Um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> every single year I've had some connection to university. I, when I completed my undergraduate degree I, I, at, at uh, the Western Sydney University, I then moved up to Sydney University and did fourth year honours in Australian literature, which was quite mind-blowing for me to think that this was... That I, that I could do research, that I could write things that pe- other people would be interested in. Um, and I was also, uh, at the time, given some opportunities to do some, give some guest talks or some guest lectures to some groups by one of my, one of my lecturers from my undergraduate degree, um, Gaynor MacDonald, so I'm grateful to her for the opportunities that she opened up to me back then, um, where... What I very very soon realised was that my story, my little old story, coming from a little old town in the centre of New South Wales, actually was valuable as a, as a, a, a teaching and learning tool to bring all of Australia, as much of Australia as you can reach, um, into an understanding of who we are. 
what I began to realise is that being Aboriginal, as I am, is is simply a result of there being non-Aboriginal people here in Australia. If there were not non-Aboriginal people in Australia, I would be Wiradjuri. When non-Aboriginal people came, this the, the category Aboriginal was created. So the next thought that I have after that is, if, if I'm only Aboriginal because non-Aboriginal people are here, then non-Aboriginal people are only non-Aboriginal because I am here. So we're making each other, in fact. Um, Non-Aboriginal people don't make me Wiradjuri. That's something quite different and, and, and separate. But if, we, if we're making each other, then we should talk about it more. We should be able to e examine and, and discuss and, and delve deep into see, seeing how we make each other. And education and research is, is, the, um, is a really important place to do that. Uh, working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander adult learners in universities um, is is a really particular field of work, and and even you know, 30 years down the track, I can see that that our achievements are uh, perhaps small in their increments, but are rich in the developments that we've had. Um, it's it's quite amazing these days to go to university and see the children of other Aboriginal people now coming to university. As a, as a very regular part of their educational experience, as, a, as a, very, a very real and normal aspiration. Back in the 80s when I was commencing my university life, it was a bit unusual for Aboriginal people to go to university. Did that make it harder for you? Um, it, it shone some lights on aspects of my life that I hadn't seen before. I hadn't, in, in my own schooling back in Narromine, my own schooling in Narromine was really quite a wonderful experience. I, I enjoyed school. I've had, I have some great teachers. Um, I loved the library. Mrs. Pattinson in the library was a <laughs> formative, formative influence in my life. And she was, she was someone who fostered a love of reading in me. So that's quite, I think that's quite an unusual experience mm, mm. across the broad um, the broad spectrum, broad spectrum of, of, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander educational experience in Australia. Um, and coming into university and beginning to, to teach on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander programs in universities um, put me at the, at the coalface of, of embracing the difficulties, of, of having, having intense discussions with, with students. Um, I remember one, one guy asking me one time, what, what have I got to read all this stuff for? Mm. What do I have to write all this stuff for? And I said, well, because we're in a university. And this guy, Dave, he said, he said, he said but come on, Jen, we're, we come from an oral culture and an oral tradition. He said, what are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was a great question because it, 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 it made me really think um, critically and deeply about what we are doing in university. Mm. Why then? Are we coming here to get... You know what a lot of people at the time were saying. You know why do we need to get white fella pieces of paper when we've got our own scholarly traditions and our own intellectual uh, ways of progressing through life, our own recognition of seniority and expertise. Um, and what came out of that discussion was it was an understanding of the, uh, firstly the importance that we've had historically of of establishing ourselves. In, in I'm, I'm reluctant to say proving ourselves in a white fella system, but but. We're doing that in, yeah, in a lot of ways. Um, but the, the real richness and the real uh, value that comes out of that, I think, is, is 
recognising the ways that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander university students who I've worked with come into the system, struggle with the system, have have uh, intellectual and, um, and emotional sort of battles with what's going on and whether we're moving too much towards assimilation or, but then recognising what's rich and valuable and taking it out of the university and taking it home. And so over the years, over the 30 years I've been involved in universities, I've seen the ways Aboriginal people manifest their learning back at home, in organisations, in communities or uh, in bureaucracies, wherever people work, um, that we, we adapt yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an amazing, it's amazing mm. stuff, and it's great mm. to hear you talk about it. And I guess I, I mm. think the one thing I'd hope is I hope that, you know, you hope that we can start seeing a, a, a situation where the learned experience goes the other way in, in some level at mm-hmm. university. Do you think that's going to happen? Oh, Serge, I think it's happening. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's happening. Tell us more. Tell us um, more. I, something that uh, something that I really value from my experience in universities um, is also working with non-Aboriginal students. Um, so I'm very privileged to be able to tutor in, in an elective subject in a, at, at UTS at the moment, Aboriginal political history. So the people who are coming to that course are generally people who have chosen an elective that's about Aboriginal history in New South Wales, Aboriginal political history of all things. So, so the fact that over 100 people this semester, for example, want to come and get their, their heads and their hearts into this topic is is really, uh, really invigorating and really exciting. For sure. Um, and in the in the, the space in, in in our learning space in the discussions that we have together, there's there's some really important exchanges from between between students between stu- man students between Australian students and and the international students who've come to study at the university. There's some really important exchanges where we're articulating and practicing and and revising our ways of identifying each other, of recognizing each other, and um, and they're therefore forming our nation of Australia from both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. So that's exciting. I've also had uh, had some great experiences working in other, other Aboriginal subjects, which are mandatory subjects in, in teaching degrees and adult education degrees. And to see to see the, the, the transformation, in some ways it's a, it's a relaxation um, um, amongst people who've come to a, to a subject that they might not be familiar with, that they might have some reticence, some hesitation about, um, who are concerned that perhaps as a non-Aboriginal person, as a white fellow, that they might be, um, might have feelings of guilt or, or you know, might be accused of things that they perhaps don't feel is necessarily their responsibility. But to, to be able to go on the learning that learning journey with people and see the, the ways people open minds and hearts to recognising our shared history um, and and our shared responsibility in the nation is really exciting. So I, th- I, th- I think it's changing. There's a lot more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people working in universities these days. There's a lot more projects that exchange knowledge and skills and experience. It's a beautiful yeah. thing. Well, look, we will come back and talk a little bit more about, I guess, maybe how a government, I think, can get involved and make things a bit better than it already is and help encourage these sorts of things. But first, we do have to play one song mm. because we, we are actually running out of time. There's been a lot of good chat here. Um, but look, <laughs> yeah. so Coloured Stone, Black Boy. Why did yeah. you choose this one? Oh, Coloured Stone. 
There's not enough coloured stone on the radio. I agree. Days. I agree. This, cause this song uh, is one of my favourite mm-hmm. favorite songs. I absolutely love it. Yeah, it's and it's it's track. joyful and exuberant, and and I'm the that chorus, black boy, the colour of your skin is your pride and joy. Is, is It's a great anthem. I think a few people would have yeah. heard this song recently, but covered mm-hmm. by Emily Waramara, was it? Yeah. 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 And yeah. I think it, it almost has given a bit of a revitalisation to the, to the mm-hmm. track that people yeah. had almost forgotten about, yeah. in at least my generation. That's Yeah. Um, yeah, which is a wonderful thing. That's, and that's the great thing about songs is they travel through time and new people pick them up. Um, I also, when I, when I listen to this song, I think about Bunnell Laurie. Um, you know, a significant figure in Coloured Stone, um, a black boy, a black man, a senior man now, um, his pride and joy and his exuberance for the earth um, continues. He's He's been a, a leading activist. He's been down there in the Great Australian Bight with the Sea Shepherd protecting the whale nursery um, and and he's he's been part of these great activi- great moments of activism, um, doing really important work for the world. Um, and going right back to the very first time I heard this song, Black Boy, and and that the lovely, the real bounce that's in the beat of this song makes it an, an important song. Could be Black Boy, it could be Black Girl, um, but Pride and Joy is, is the, the great message that I take from it.
been listening to Out of the Box and FBI Radio. My name is Serge Nigas. My guest today has been Radjuri woman Jennifer Newman. She is, does a lot of incredible work, work in academia when it comes to Indigenous rights and Indigenous education. <laughs> now, look, we were talking before the break about some of the amazing things that are happening in those realms. But, I mean, for you, when it comes to recognition, I mean, where do you think we need to go and what do you think the government needs to be doing in order to kind of bring those things together? Um, the first thing we need to do is stop fluffing around on this whole recognition thing. Um, constitutional recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people has been bubbling away in, in, in a simmering pot since, well, since 1788, let's, <laughs> to be serious. Um, but in, in, it was in 2010, back in 2010, that Julia Gillard, the then Prime Minister, and, um, appointed the expert panel on constitutional recognition and they delivered a report with some, some, some uh, great recommendations and the Gillard government passed the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Constitutional Recognition Act, which at the time was it was an act that had a two-year sunset clause in it, so that over the period of two years some serious work could be put into bringing us to a referendum on constitutional recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Just this week we've seen the announcement of the latest version of the Parliamentary Committee um, inquiring into constitutional recognition. In July of last year, we saw the Uluru Statement from the Heart delivered by, the, by that National Convention of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. What's really missing, uh, I think, was, was the uplift of a key recommendation from the expert panel report of, of 2012, and that was the, the recommendation for a properly resourced public education program about constitutional recognition. Um, much of the discourse that I hear now, that I read now, um, seems to be not very well informed about what constitutional recognition might yeah, mean. There's a lot of confusion and, and a lot of there was yeah. even a lot of fightback about it, you know, like the, mm. the debate between constitutional recognition or treaty or whatever it may be, and yeah. people got very confused, didn't they? That's Yeah, um, which is sometimes I suspect it's a government strategy to obfuscate things so that they don't really have to do anything. Um, I don't know, if I was the Prime Minister of Australia, I would see holding the constitutional recognition referendum and signing the first of a series of treaties to be possibly one of the greatest things I could do as the Prime Minister. I don't quite mm. understand why um, the last couple of Prime Ministers that we've had have not taken up that opportunity to really embed themselves as historic figures, although politically I understand why... Uh, Tony Abbott was was not a, a strong advocate for, for constitutional recognition, and and I I'm, I'm not sure that Malcolm Turnbull understands things in in a deep and sophisticated way that allows so him to pick it up. Can you simplify for us exactly mm. what the positives and potential mm. pitfalls of, of constitutional mm -hmm. recognition are? Mm -hmm. For me, the the really significant element of constitutional reform uh, centres around removing the race power, removing a race power given to our parliament to make laws for people of any race for whom it is deemed necessary. That's presently the power that important legislations like Native Title Act uh, have been enacted, but also those other detrimental acts like the Northern Territory Intervention Suite of Legislations, the Hindmarsh Island Bridge Act, those acts that, that uh, really suppress and destroy Aboriginal rights. Um, we, we've got to get the race power out of, mm. out of the act. And we have to put in to the Constitution, a direction and instruction to the Parliament about its responsibilities to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the original people, as the First Nations, 
as as the people who have been here ab originally from the beginning of time we can't do that simply and quickly it requires some thought and some formulation um, the i um, i wouldn't like to see a power enacted that that gave some sort of overlord um, uh, patronising kind of care that we've seen in previous legislations for Aboriginal people under the Protection Acts, mm -hmm. but certainly a responsibility that speaks about the reciprocal relationships between First Nations people and all other Australians is, is what the Constitution needs to have embedded in it. The other important aspect about constitutional reform is that the matters that are in, uh, aspects of Australia that are embedded in the Constitution can only be changed by referendum. They're not subject to the whim which of a is, parliament which or Which is party. an inherently difficult process because you yes. need a double majority. Yes. Look, unfortunately, yeah. I'd love to keep talking about this forever, <laughs> Jennifer, but yeah. the nature of the yeah. conversation, it's a mm. bloody long one, but it's yeah. something that I'm sure we mm. can all follow um, going forward mm. into the years because it'll be a hot topic that won't go away mm. until it's solved, really, That's will right. it? That's right. Look, it's been mm. an absolute yeah. pleasure having you on. Mm -hmm. I've got to say a big mm. thanks to my producer, Nicole DiPaolo, for helping me set this one up. Coming up next is uh, Maya Billick, but we do have one last song jennifer what's the last yeah. song you're gonna play for us the last song is mixed relations aboriginal woman and I've, I've chosen to close with this because in july of this year in nadoc week the nadoc week theme this year is because of her we can a celebration of aboriginal and torres strait islander women in the past in the present and in the future it's a mixed relations song we should play more about willoughby songs um and Mixed Relations is, is, a, is a band that, uh, aside from Bart Willoughby's outstanding musical ability, Brenda Gifford is there on her saxophone. Brenda Gifford, who I also know as an educator. Murray Cook is in there, another educator who I know through my, my um, university experience, through my education experience. So... Historically, mixed it's a band relations. I had mixed relations, mixed relations. beautifully go. mixed relations, <laughs> Aboriginal woman, the go backbone of our spiritual ways. Let's go, 
I've eaten the body of the Lord It's from the fountain of good fortune 